Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 2, New Eden, is over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Leese, and here with me this week in the co-pilot seat is a very special guest star who's here to initiate the donut maneuver. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Mike Bloom. I'm sorry to report you, Jess, but uh, Mike Bloom died six months ago. The person you're talking to might just be a manifestation saying, you can do it, Sleese. I always knew you could. Well, that's going to be a really fun episode then, because nothing excites me more about a podcast than a person just talking to themselves for an hour. It's what I treasure about Mark Marin. I mean, basically what you can do is just sort of loop it, you know, 200 times. That seems to be what the uh, Jacob on New Eden was doing to sort of entertain himself slash try to reach a uh, grasp for straws into the outside world that his uh, arcane theories might actually be correct. Yeah, well, if you don't have straws to grasp, what do you really have to cling to in this world? <laughs> That's true. Uh, it's some really some really cool clothing. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, I, I love it when people try to dress 21st century when they're in the 23rd century. Yeah, it's it's very much like, uh, I don't know, I guess like our thoughts about like the 19th century, which are way antiquated. Maybe that's how the 24th, or I guess it's 23rd at this point. Think about the 21st, that the New Eden people have like, uh, I don't know, they, they start to take on the post-apocalyptic wear that seems to exist in all of our dystopian fiction these days. Like they're looking straight out of that Hunger Games, the 100 type of uh, darkly chromatic, uh, rustic wear. Well, I think what we learn from all of these shows is that a leather jacket is timeless. <laughs> Apparently, it's I mean, it's it's really the most practical thing you could have in any century. I think that will uh, maybe and maybe in the future, you know, there will be a synthesizers to create a, a faux leather in order to not necessarily harm animals, assuming that cows are even still around in the 23rd century. But I think I think we've stumbled upon, uh, you know, whoever becomes the, the biggest leather designer in the next few years before World War Three takes place uh, might have the best glimpse into the future as depicted by Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, well, it's very true. But, you know, it, in the future, they won't even need cows to create leather. They can do it like they can grow it in a lab. <laughs> That's very true, though. Again, the people of New Eden, I think they'd rather have the cows. They they want to go rustic. They want to go simplistic with it all or just be thankful that if like leather jackets showed up on their doorstep, that their uh, savior, the Red Angel, brought it to them. So, I mean, they're they're really, you know, uh, thinking back to a simpler time. I guess they're truly the hipsters of the Star Trek world, though not by choice. I don't think anybody ever chooses to be a hipster. I think you have hipster thrust upon you. <laughs> <laughs> engage hipster thrusters uh, i'm super excited to talk with you about this episode in particular Jess. first i love what you and rob have been doing i mean you guys really got me into star trek discovery last year before i had the opportunity to get to cover it for the hollywood reporter and i gotta say i've probably uh been a bit oppositional to a lot of star trek fans that i've been seeing and that i've been enjoying a lot of the more audacious risks that Discovery is taking in terms of comparisons to the rest of the franchise. But you know what? It's it's good to sort of come back home sometimes, to have that sort of homemade meal that you always know is going to be safe and reliable and a good time. And this is one of the most old-school episodes of Discovery that I've seen. And almost as a result, it might be one of my favorite episodes of the series thus far. I just thought it was super well done and super strong. What did you think of it? 
I think I agree with you. It is kind of the platonic ideal of Star Trek, but I'm really, frankly, I'm very torn on this because as a standalone episode, I really loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. It hit all of the notes that you want out of a good Star Trek episode, but it's also, I got so accustomed last season to the bonkers plot twists and the arcs that just went on for the whole season. And it's hard for me to adjust back into this comfortable zone. Like I've been eating molecular gastronomy for a whole season. And now you want me to dig into this big plate of macaroni and cheese. It's, it's a lot of cognitive dissonance for me. And I, I can't honestly tell, I don't think the show has jumped the shark, but a lot of people are saying appropriately enough, given the director of this episode, I've seen a lot of people online saying that this is the episode where the show has grown the beard. And I'm curious mm. to see what you think of that. Do you think this is a new direction? Well, I mean, Spock already grew the beard, so I think they've already sort of jumped that point, even though we <laughs> haven't uh, seen him yet. And put that foam down, Jess. It's an interesting point because, uh, I mean, if you followed the Star Trek preseason stuff, uh, and I was fortunate you know, to be able to talk to people like Alex Kurtzman, uh, the new showrunner of the series and co-creator as well, there's been a lot of talk about how, understandably for season one, Things moved at a breakneck pace because of the theme of war. War doesn't really have many lulls in it. So even when you have, you know, uh, the magic makes the sanest man grow mad at the big Harry Mud time travel episode, that still feels like it's a bit of an adrenaline rush. And I feel like we got a bit of that still in the first episode. It felt like a transitional period because from what I've been hearing, it does seem like we are going to be going back to this more. I guess I compare it to like a Deep Space Nine feel where it sort of is this hybridized thing of there are standalone missions within episodes, but also the things that happen inform a greater narrative that occurs over the course of a season. Whereas maybe the first season was more this happened and then this happened and then this happened. This is more, hey, let's take this tangent off into this other place. And some things that they learned along the way will help inform the larger mysteries that are going on. There's only a sample size of one, so I don't know if I can completely get on board with the statements that this is going to be the turning point for the franchise. Uh, they might just be doing donuts right now uh, <laughs> to see exactly uh, what they can drag behind them. But I enjoy it. I'm hopeful that that means, you know, they can make this segue to a more familiarized version of Trek without it not seeming too, too jarring, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, and I agree. Um for my money, it never got better than when Deep Space Nine was using individual stories to push the greater narrative forward. But, you know, if you just dropped in on one episode, you didn't feel totally lost and like, who's that guy and why is he doing that for the most part? Um, so I guess I can get behind this. And I am very intrigued with this idea that they're almost like quantum leaping across the galaxy to put right what once went wrong, because we've had two episodes back to back where it seems like these red bursts are steering them toward saving lives. And to what end? I don't know. And I also don't know exactly how this red angel character fits into all of this. Yeah, so that's, I think, the big overarching thing that's really hanging above everything. And you have this red angel who really just is a 
recurring figure. And obviously there have been theories that have been bandied about. I'm sure we'll get into a couple of them. But yeah, you're essentially vocalizing what Saru talks about on the show once they actually get to the planet and they uh, sort of take a look at like, oh, crap, uh, there might be another doomsday going on for these poor people. They don't want to be, you know, have that happen twice in their poor lives. And Saru sort of realizes Hey, you know, the first time we got beamed to exactly where that asteroid was, where that one person was alive and we rescued them. And we also were able to grab a nice old uh, interesting source of energy to boot. And here we essentially saved an entire planet. I mean, it just ties so interestingly into the narrative of this episode, which is really based on this idea of faith and believing in a higher power and how Michael Burnham, I think, is sort of trying to find a way to deny that form of quote unquote logic in honor of her own place of logic from her method of being raised on Vulcan. But it seems like it's almost inevitable to encounter, considering that this big thing that even she has encountered seems like it has a larger plan for them. Now, whether that means it's connected to something mystical whether it's something like the q which is just like a bunch of dicks uh trying to like you know essentially uh, throw (laughs) them around and put them on different missions i'm not entirely sure but i do sort of like one of the reasons why i like this episode is because there was a lot of fun mirroring going on between the conflict on new eden with the internal moral conflict that was going on miles above it in discovery well it's an interesting point um i liked that they quote Arthur C. Clarke here about um, sufficiently advanced technology being indistinguishable from magic. And then the flip side of that, which is Shermer's last law, um, named after Michael Shermer, who wrote the skeptic column in Scientific American, um, where he says that sufficiently advanced extraterrestrial intelligence is indistinguishable from God. And so it brings in a new angle on it's not necessarily these are mystical powers. They're just far more advanced powers. and. Deep Space Nine, of course, dug into this a lot with the prophets in the wormhole who were really just aliens that existed outside of time. But here we have a chance to address the kind of the dichotomy between logic and faith in ways that we've really not gotten into in Star Trek. And I really loved what you had to say in The Hollywood Reporter about this. I thought your recap on this was really insightful. Thank you. Yeah. So I had the opportunity to write about exactly that. And I think what's super interesting is that uh, and Alex Kurtzman got the opportunity to, to talk to me about this in the beginning of the season that he purposely wanted to base this season around this idea of faith. And what exactly do you do when all the things that you know are essentially thrown out the window and you're trusted to believe in this thing that might not necessarily be completely logical? But and while you, I think I totally get your point that I think, uh, you know, franchises or series like Deep Space Nine or, you know, uh, you guys talked about Star Trek five with why does God need what does Earth does God need with a spaceship? Like it's a it's a theme religion that has been talked about a good handful of times in the various series. But I mean, it's so interesting that this series is the closest closest hewn to the original series to the point that there are so many crossovers when, if you go all the way back 50 plus years to Gene Roddenberry originally conceiving this, this guy was a secular humanist. He essentially wanted to say, like, in my perfect utopia, everybody's an atheist. So on this show, everybody is an atheist. Now, again, there were exceptions. I feel like um, the this episode is actually probably most comparable to the TOS episode, The Paradise Syndrome, 
which is uh, where Kirk loses his memory on that planet that was uh, made up to look like a Native American reservation. <laughs> uh, so, so there were some 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 comparisons there, but for the most part, and uh, Jonathan Franks also vocalized that when I got the opportunity to talk about him with this this week, is that it, it's a, sort of a very taboo subject that was often not brought up on the show. And I do feel like both, you know, the franchise and societal standards have changed where I feel like there are so many belief systems out there uh, that were sort of represented by them beaming down to this church and seeing a stained glass window that is essentially a big cash all. It's like the um, the coexist bumper in a stained glass window. <laughs> but, it, but, but, it, but it represents this idea that, you know, this is something that is such a key part in people's lives that I feel like it needs to be discussed and how even in your own personal belief systems, there are things that can contradict each other, which is essentially Pike's big conflict this episode. Yeah, well, that's true. I was I was going to say they're they all are basically functioning like Unitarians, but I like the coexist bumper sticker better. <laughs> yeah, I, I just loved all the the symbols sort of mixing together, even though I will say I think Jesus is the biggest part of it, though. I guess they wound up in a church to start with. So I guess they had to sort of retrofit things. They didn't necessarily have the best technology to uh, wipe it all out and start building all over again. Yeah, it, it'd be kind of weird to be destroying what was already there. They kind of had to build on it. So it's like there's a lot of Jesus already there. So we'll we'll call that covered and we'll we'll add some more stuff. Yeah, though, again, it's interesting that he's there. But obviously, like the big thing is the Red Angel who I mean, it's the actual stained glass of the angel. Uh, it was surrounded by the red aura, but it kind of looked like I don't know if you've seen promos for the Lego movie, too. Jess, that's coming out. <laughs> but like, there's a new character that kind of looks like the depiction of the angel. Well, you know, I don't know what people were doing in 2053 when World War Three was happening all around them. Sometimes you cling to some weird things. Yeah. That's very true. So I guess what did you think about this idea that, you know, this is, again, a subject that's been approached a few times of this idea of like a pre-warp humanistic society that these are literally people transplanted from Earth who just don't know any better. What did you think about the concept of the New Eden colony itself? Well, it was an interesting idea that makes you really have to confront what World War Three is going to mean on Earth. And I like this whole alternate Earth history. I love it when they kind of dig back into that. Uh, and I think I've mentioned before on this podcast that uh, one of my favorite arcs on Deep Space Nine was when they went back to Earth and they went back in time and witnessed the Bell Riots. And it was kind of like, here's how much worse it's going to get before they figure it all out and it gets better. And mm. This idea that they just kind of picked up this whole church and plunked it down in the middle of the Beta Quadrant. I think it's really interesting. And it also is an interesting wrinkle for the Prime Directive, um, or as they are calling it right now in this point in history, General Order One. Yeah, that's that That was an interesting thing, because I guess that's sort of like, a, you know, it's a prequel when uh, just because it sort <laughs> of has it's like it hasn't gotten its fun nickname yet. It's still sort of in its weird like I prefer to go by General Order One, please, like proper naming phase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what's what I found was even more interesting that I that didn't even occur to me was that Rob and I spent a lot of time dissecting the prime directive as it would have applied to uh Giorgio picking up Saru in the short trek, and it turns out that that wasn't even really like General Order One wasn't even a thing back then. Mm. Yeah, it's it's weird because 
I mean, I'm trying to remember if actually I was actually watching this with uh, my wife, a huge Star Trek devotee and previous guest on this podcast, the lovely Angela Bloom. And she brought up this question that honestly, I can't remember the answer to as to whether or not, you know, they said Federation, but I can't remember if like United Federation of Planets has actually been said yet. So I'm not entirely sure because obviously we have just seen, you know, a temporary alliance form between the Federation and the Klingons. I'm not exactly sure what sort of point we are in the timeline. Maybe they sort of are uh, similar to like, you know, the the colonists of 17 in the 1780s who had just finished writing the Bill of Rights and were trying to figure out exactly what to put in there. Yeah, I mean, it's totally plausible. And they're still like they're still at the beginning of Act Two of their rap musical about it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, everyone's got the long hair like they're 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 they let it all down. They're uh, they're ready to go. Uh, I, I feel for these people, Jess. It seemed like they're having a good time, but I don't know. Uh, it's, it's like when you feel like you've been off of like social media for a couple days and you just feel like totally out of the loop when people make references to certain memes that you just don't really know about. It, you, you feel you feel like uh, you're a few steps behind. Yeah, you, you pop in and you get the jazz number. You're like, what did I miss? <laughs> exactly. We we can just c- keep comparing Hamilton to New Eden for the the rest of this episode, and I'd be totally happy. Well, look, my my social media networks inform me that there is nothing in the world you can't tie back to Hamilton somehow. Um, but anyway, we can get back to the Prime Directive um, slash General Order One, which sounds like something out of Star Wars. Also, its acronym is Goo, so maybe that's why they said Prime Directive. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I I like goo better. Um, <laughs> truth be told. Could you imagine? I mean, Anson Mount could do it because Anson Mount is so playful as Captain Pike. But could you imagine like, I don't know. Could you imagine Patrick Stewart talking about goo? I feel like that just <laughs> like, he could not get that across. Yeah, it, it's true. I, I think I think Kirk wouldn't have a problem with it, but goo. Picard- <laughs> <laughs> I think I gotta go work. But I uh, yeah, this is a really interesting situation for captain pike uh and especially i know we brought up the moment earlier with sarusar talking about how he feels like he's been brought here for a higher purpose in terms of these red bursts which as you mentioned with the short tracks episode is another interesting tie-in because if you remember back on kaminar he was totally agnostic borderline atheist about the religion on kaminar of serving this higher power of the baul and the great balance of it all uh maybe it seems like I don't know, maybe it's just a grander scale that makes him start to believe in it. But it's it's an interesting dichotomy considering the angsty teenage Saru that we saw in Short Treks by comparison. Yeah, or it could just be that now confronted by something he doesn't understand, he doesn't feel quite so arrogant about it anymore. And mm. maybe he's starting to come back around to, oh, maybe my dad was right. Something I think happens when you get older, you realize your parents knew a lot more than you thought they did. Yeah, I mean, the uh, and the ganglia was not out this episode, which was a bit surprising. Maybe that just shows like his continuing steering into the curve of this faith. Uh, you know, we saw this a bit with the Pavo episode last season where like he was totally placated by this thing that just guaranteed him that he would not have fear any longer. And that sort of I don't want to get too much into the, you know, this is what religion is, but. This is what religion is, in a way. It it provides edicts that say this is the way the world works. And I think one of the qualities that it does have is it does allow those believers to sort of put themselves uh, at ease and knowing that, in their opinion, this is the way that the world works. So it'll be interesting to sort of uh, 
I, I know I'm just totally taking like a five second moment from Saru and dragging it out into a five minute discussion, but I think it's an interesting pin to put in considering like his own previous uh, bouts and crises of faith. It'll be interesting, especially I think to see Saru on one hand being like, he can be the man of faith and then we could have Michael Burnham being the man of science. Um, if yeah. we want to re- reference yet another thing that we always reference on this podcast. Well, it's interesting, though, because because Pike was totally the man of faith this episode, right? Like he comes yeah. in being like, uh, oh, my father t- taught science, but he uh, have, was involved in comparative religion as well. And he's the one who was uh, he's got like the and also with you script down as well. This this is a guy that is totally about the faith which is so super interesting when he decides to sort of uh, blue balls the people on New Eden and essentially say, like, no, we we can't reveal that. Uh, You know, we're going to have you keep believing in whatever you want to. Well, the thing about Pike is I almost see him as a bridge between the two philosophies because he definitely does have the orders and the logic down pat. But he has this side to him with the comparative religions, which I almost when he when he dropped that on us this episode, I almost thought that's a little too convenient. Like that's like Tig Notaro's character being able to to perform brain surgery because she's an engineer. Uh, That's a little bit, you know, we're starting to get into a little bit too perfect territory. But if he can use it to kind of link the two philosophies together and sort of sit in the middle of all of this, I'm not mad at it. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, maybe Starfleet Academy at this point was like more like a liberal arts college where like yeah. everyone had to take a certain subject. Uh, and so they just sort of patch everything together. It is a bit like a uh, utilitarian, like you were saying beforehand. He happens to know all this stuff. I mean, it pays off well here. I, I can't remember, Jess. Did we? I mean, I guess besides the aforementioned Pavo stuff, I guess due to the war, there really wasn't a lot of away mission stuff going on, right? This feels like, again, maybe one of the other reasons why this feels truly authentic, quote-unquote, old-school Star Trek is because this is really one of our first tastes in this series of group of people go aboard a planet, try to fix a problem, or maybe in Pike's case, try to completely avoid the problem and make up this incredible lie about who you are and then get get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, it's it's true that there's a lot more of that this season, I think. And it's, you know, it's back to this it's kind of hearkening back to classic Trek again, where you have the people that all get together and go down and like interfere or choose not to interfere. And then they go on their merry way off into the sunset. Um, And yeah, I think it's definitely something that is happening this season. I think Pike is an interesting way to bring that back in. It's almost like we got this whole bonkers first season of war stuff. And now it's like, we're going to bring back somebody from the old universe and he's going to bring old universe ways into the show again. Yeah. And that, but that pairs really nicely with what we were talking about before, where it's old universe characters, but they're sort of encroaching on these newer ideas, or at least bringing ideas into the franchise that while they have been touched upon before, to your point, have not exactly been brought up in this particular way in the franchise. And I think that's sort of a way to sort of fill the best of both worlds. Uh, I think Alex Kurtzman had pretty big shoes to step into in not only covering a Star Trek franchise, but also covering a Star Trek series that is bringing in these first season, uh, these, these original series characters. We had Sarek appear briefly, but I mean, when you're dealing with freaking Spock, I mean, you really have to stick that landing 
TBD, because we again, we still have yet to see him. And we got Ethan Peck essentially uh, repeating the same thing we heard at the end of the previous episode in the beginning of this one, um, doing its own sort of audio loop there. But it's, it's a nice way to sort of make your franchise or you make your series feel fresh while at the same time sort of saying, hey, you know what? This is going to be familiar, but we're going to refurbish it a bit. You know, we'll, we'll keep the Enterprise crew in those fun new colorized outfits. But then by the end, we're going to have Pike sporting that nice blue and gold because that that's where he is right now. Yeah. And, you know, this is before you were even born, Mike. So you will obviously not have any familiarity with this. And I barely do because I was a kid when this happened. But I think people had a lot of the same concerns when Star Trek The Next Generation premiered because there's so much love built up around the original series and everybody had a particular way of dressing and talking and acting and the stories had a familiar way of unfolding. And it was like, can we put something new on it? Can we update it for the new decade and with new people and will people love it anyway? And it took a little while to catch on. But when it did, it was like, they were moving forward at full warp and people loved it. And once the show hit its stride, I think we got the idea that you can take this old universe and you can tell new stories in it and it doesn't have to be exactly like the old stuff behind it. And I think that's always been how Star Trek has been with mixed degrees of success. It hasn't always mm. been fantastic, but I think we're looking at it. When we look at it through that lens and we see this is what's trying to do, I think we're primed to have some really good things happening. Yeah, I mean, essentially, hopefully in that case, we'll be able to put Discovery in the spore drive and have it just warp to crazy, fantastical places. Yes. Well, speaking of warping to crazy, fantastical places, um, and this is a terrible segue, but um, I want to talk a little bit about the motivations behind these red bursts and all of these little pieces that are coming together. And I want to get a sense of what you think of some of the weirder theories that are coming around about this. Um, first of all, what are the rules in this of these red bursts? Um, are these benevolent? Are they only focused on humans? Because the last two we've seen, we have saved humans pretty much exclusively. Mm, I mean, maybe they've spent so much of the budget on these other crazy creatures <laughs> that they could only by coincidence be humans that they're saving. Oh, come on. Just take a piece of silly putty and stick it on your nose and you look better than half the aliens <laughs> on the original series. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's very true. Or you could just utilize CGI as they seem to be doing a lot uh, to great value uh, in this one. It's it's an interesting point that, you know, again, we have a very small sample size. I thought it's interesting that according to Pike in the first episode, they said, oh, these seven things appeared and then they disappeared except for one. But it seems like the second one reappeared. So it seems like it was not an ephemeral thing. It seems like if there I personally think there is someone or something clearly signaling these people to do something otherwise this would not just be a one-time snapshot it seems like they're repeatedly flicking the light on and off to sort of get people to get the message yeah well it's like they're hunting down the horcruxes mm, yes and it, it does feel like uh hopefully i don't know uh maybe the maybe may is actually like the voice inside the horcrux for tilly that's trying to convince her not to kill it and do the right thing yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, who knows? They could have been speaking parcel tongue that whole time. We wouldn't have had any idea. 
I mean, that's sort of like the, uh, it's actually kind of like Klingon, right? It's like the, uh, the tongue of the, what's usually represented as an evil house, even though it might be misunderstood. Yeah, I, I guess so. But since you brought it up, let's talk about that B plot for a second, because I want to know how the spores fit in with the red bursts and the angel and something woke up in the spores when they ran into those dark matter rocks. And is this all part of their plan as well? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I know that's something that Jonathan Frakes actually pointed out to me in my interview that I did with him for this past episode is he uh, gestured me to an episode near the end of the first season, the moment when Discovery escapes the Mirror Universe, where Stamets is able to put it into overdrive. He talks about this on the episode about how uh, the mycelial representation of Hugh was essentially able to guide him through that Bill and Ted-esque network uh, through the phone booth to get back to their prime universe. But there's that moment when all those foreign spores are hanging in the air and you see this tiny little Tinkerbell-esque green spore make its way onto Tilly's shoulder. And I wonder if uh, that sort of is is something that might be dealing with the red burst because that's technically a, a, an alien concept, quite literally. And maybe that is communicating. Maybe it's some sort of, I don't know, uh, some sort of like fungal parasite that might be communicating with the red angel through some sort of method of communication and maybe that's sort of like the the thing that's really been guiding discovery aboard and has helped the red angel detect what discovery is well that's interesting um i had certainly given that the spores were sort of asleep and then woke up again i had wondered the same thing and i wonder why the spores choose to manifest these visions as dead people. Mm. I mean, it's it's interesting because Stamets and uh, I don't know, maybe Anthony Rapp was uh, filming his Red Live stuff like he appeared on so nicely last night at the time yeah. of recording this. Uh, not a lot. It's like minimal Stamets this season, which makes me a little disappointed because I really did enjoy him by the end of the first season. But he does have this really poignant quote in the very beginning of the episode where he talks about, you know, uh, if you're talking about your own set of beliefs, his belief in science actually ties nicely into a faith where he essentially believes astromycology has essentially led him to believe in reincarnation, uh, the sort of like law of entropy, that energy is neither created nor destroyed. It just sort of manifests in different things. I do wonder, you know, depending on how hyper intelligent these spores are, if it does glom onto something like a memory. Again, if we're thinking about this like a parasite, if it takes something from your brain and essentially projects it in order to, to guide you to do something. And it might be a positive thing or it might be a negative thing. Uh, but I, I think it's I don't know. Spores, uh, it, it was a good power to harness, but maybe they're showing they can show more danger than I think we initially expected, even when we did find them on a giant bear-sized tardigrade back in the first season. Well, I always expect the moral of a story like that to be don't play God, which it certainly seemed like in the first season, that was where we were heading with that. It was like, oh, well, we almost killed Stamets by making all these stupid jumps at Lorca's request, and now we can't use the spore drive anymore because it's playing havoc with the universe. But now it's like, oh, well, I guess we could use it sometime if we see a red burst and we need to get somewhere in a hurry. Yeah, I, I do wonder if that's a, a point that we'll need to put in there, because, yeah, it did seem that as much as Starfleet was like, nope, we're shelving it. And I know that you and Rom talked about this. Uh, sometimes with prequels, I, I like to refer to what's called like the Mace Windu syndrome of if something that's not in the main franchise is part of a prequel series 
there's a good chance that thing is going to die or not exist because otherwise it would have been important in the, the main franchise, right? And so the fact that never in the original series onwards have they talked about the spore drive and, you know, uh, black, you know, jumping and the warp black and everything like that shows that at some point this thing needs to get shelved. And I totally thought it was going to happen at the first season, but it seems like they're dusting it off a bit. I think Pike is sort of repurposing it, saying like, yeah, it's not used for war, but this is, uh, you know, my big mission. So we have to use it for something. I did notice that when uh, when Stamets did make those jumps, he does offer to do it again later on. But after the first time he does it, I don't I couldn't really tell the expression on his face, but he seemed a bit peeved about it. That's I mean, just his face, Mike. That's true. He does have a bit of a resting bee face. Uh, poor Stamets. But I mean, I do wonder if it calls back to what you what happened last episode where he sort of he is now tangentially still connected with Discovery because I think he's really interested by this asteroid's reaction to the spores in particular. But there are still things that remind him of Hugh and the fact that, you know, the fact that uh, he held Hugh in his arms while he was, uh, you know, entra- entrapped in the mycelial network. Maybe it shows, just shows a bad association and something that he still can't get over. But that's another interesting plot line to explore with an off uh, or seldom seen character this season. Yeah, and I would guess we're probably not going to get nearly as much of that as we want. Yeah, though, again, you guys pointed out Wilson Cruz has been upgraded to the main cast. So maybe he, you know, uh, Stamets has his own sort of like spore revolution where maybe we have evil Hugh in his mind. I'm not huh. entirely sure, but it's it feels like we've got to get something more uh, with Stamets going on there. Maybe he has more of a connection, like you said, with if the Red Angel is linked to these spores, the man is made of spores. So maybe that will become a thing. Maybe he could become like possessed by the Red Angel. I'm not entirely sure, but there, there's got to be something in there. Yeah, it's definitely all connected somehow, because I think we also have to look at the larger Star Trek universe, because there are other ways that this spore like jumping around in space and time has taken place. And we've already found out that there's some kind of dark matter containing substance in an asteroid. Last episode, we found that out, that there's something there that they may be able to harness to do the same type of travel. And there are other times where somebody has gone somewhere that they shouldn't have been able to go if the laws of physics are totally linear. Um, like, for example, we have the Deep Space Nine wormhole. We have mm. Q picking you up and putting you somewhere totally different. We have however the hell Voyager got home and it's been 10 years and I don't remember. And we also have a species that came up on several Reddit threads this week that I am really interested in wondering if this is somehow also tied into the Red Angel because there's a species called the Iconians. And Mike, do you know anything about this? Uh, no, I don't. How iconic are the Iconians? Uh, they're not super iconic. Um, in fact, they're extinct. And oh. the only time they show up is when there's sort of a there's sort of a hint. They're sort of mythical. Nobody really had proof that they were around um, because apparently 200,000 years ago, they were in the Beta Quadrant and they could travel through space without starships using these things they built called Iconian Gates. And this shows up in a few different series where they find like the remnants of a gate or they find a gate and they're able to use it to some effect or they decide not to use it because they're playing God in the universe. And that's an overarching sentiment in sci-fi that you don't want to do that. But there's been some theorizing that maybe these 
red angel creatures that we keep seeing are somehow related to this. Mm, that is interesting because I do see the point. And I think at least my main theory right now is that this is some sort of race, maybe an undiscovered race, because it does feel a lot like to make another comparison to a peak TV show, uh, Westworld. There's an episode in season one where uh, there's this Native American tribe that essentially has, uh, you know, carved a figure of this, you know, uh, shadow creature that ends up wearing the outfit of the outfit that a staff member of Westworld would wear. And that sort of is the similar situation I'm seeing here where maybe these creatures are purposely taking the shape of a red angel to appeal to these people's sense of faith. Maybe they're just doing it because it's how they look, but it does feel like, I don't know if we're dealing necessarily with one central figure. I could see, uh, reminds me a bit of, uh, the episode where Lieutenant Barclay got taken over by this, uh, sort of like alien compound that made him super smart in, uh, next gen. Ended up being basically this, this, uh, this one super intelligent race just essentially wanted to do a booty call to call the <laughs> Enterprise over to, to, to talk with them. And he didn't want to come over to them. He had to bring them over to him. That sort of is what I'm feeling here of maybe there's a set of creatures that want to both have the discovery do good, but eventually try to read the signs and interact with it. And maybe Spock is the only one that's really starting to see those connections being made. So it's like the red bursts are a test. And if you solve the test, you get to talk to the aliens. Exactly. Yeah, it's sort of like, I mean... In that case, I don't know why anyone else is not pursuing it. I mean, I guess Pike said that this was sort of his mission. Maybe Starfleet wanted to give it to him as recompense for having him sit out the war. I'm a bit surprised that, you know, the, the Klingons say they've seen it. There's a, a nice name drop of High Chancellor Laurel last episode that they see it too and they don't know what's going on. I'm a bit, I'm a bit surprised that other races have not gone after it, uh, considering what benefits or costs they may provide. But I guess maybe they figure like, hey, if Starfleet wants to, you know, run suicide missions around the universe, go ahead. Or is it sort of like in uh, the movie Contact with Jodie Foster, uh, based on the novel by Carl Sagan, where they get plans and if they can decode the plans and create the machine, then they can talk to the aliens or even without spoiling the entire movie, sort of like the, the movie Arrival that came out fairly mm. recently. Yeah, absolutely. We're like, I mean, I guess, yeah, that's similar to what the the giant obelisk that all showed up around the world. That's kind of like those seven bursts, right? So I guess is uh, is Spock the Amy Adams of this of Discovery then? I, I'm prepared to say Spock is the Amy Adams and maybe maybe he's figured out some piece of the puzzle and it's driven him insane. And this is why he has checked himself into a mental institution. Yeah, that. What did you think about that re revelation? Because we're get, we're getting slow little peaks of what's going on with Spock. I think Alex Kurtzman said some, something really interesting to me where he felt like this season was going to be Spock's unwritten chapter, and he's going to have a lot of fun with playing around with Spock essentially going through his own quarter mid life crisis uh, <laughs> where he's basically trying to figure out like how he becomes this infamous depiction of Leonard Nimoy. And again, that's that checks off a lot of boxes and it both allows you to explore a character that's tried and true while at the same time trying not to garner comparisons to this iconic original. Uh, but we make a revelation here where Pike finally decides to reveal to Burnham like, hey, you know, uh, Spike went on that Spike went on that field trip. Didn't last too long because dude went to Starbase five and decided to uh, to put himself in a nice padded cell. Well, my first thought was I felt kind of sad that we we've had all these great scientific advances in the 300 years between now and then. 
And that's still what we're doing for mental health. That's mm. kind of sad, but yeah, yeah. I mean, again, we're we're talking about the nation days of Starfleet. Maybe they necessarily have not uh, signed away the the mental health protocol to work on that, or maybe it's just because there's with the uh, discovery of extraterrestrial life, there are so many things that can go on in your head. I just referenced the Barclay episode where he mm-hmm. dealt with his own sort of mental struggles. Maybe they just sort of did a catch all of all right. We'll just sort of have a place for people to just chill out. Uh, considering that again, Spock checked himself in. It did not seem like there was an incident, at least that we know of where he had to be placed in there against his own will no it all happened inside his head but it's still it's still depressing that future psychiatric treatments are still like counselor troy sitting in a calm room asking you how it makes you feel well she already knows how you feel so it's more it's a redundant question she just (laughs) wants you to she knows how you feel she just wants you to admit it yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, we we shall see. I mean, I do not I do not know if we're going to get a peek and maybe we'll get like our own take on like a, I don't know, a Grey's Anatomy uh, version of Discovery in one of these episodes where we deal with Spock in there. But it's, a, it's an interesting personal element and it harkens back to Burnham's, uh, you know, uh, very secretive relationship and how things ended. You could imagine with the amount of guilt she's been feeling about all this, it's gotten even heavier with the fact that essentially what Pike is saying is like, hey, that stuff you did to him essentially drove him insane. Well, do we think it's really her fault? Uh, because it seems like it's been a long time since she's talked to him. I mean, he could have been doing something else, but I guess it does seem like she feels some responsibility for this. I mean, yeah, Burnham also just has, like, a nice big old sense of guilt as it is. She's the one who, you know, obviously had this huge, heavy thing weighing on her throughout season one of, like, I'm the one who caused the, the Klingon war. I'm the one who got my captain killed. Uh, and that's still something that I think she carries with her into season two. So I think she she's just not someone who's uh, who lets things go, which is understandable, given the fact that, uh, you know, her very traumatic childhood but it is interesting to your point coming from, you know, a very subjective perspective that she is as objective as she tries to be with her logic. I would be super intrigued to see how either Sarek or Amanda would talk about the situation, because it seems like they might be a bit more objective to it than the person who said, it's all my fault. I'm the one who did this to him. Yeah, well, well we already know that, that Sarek would not blame himself for anything because that's not logical. Yeah. That's true, though he does. At least he fessed up last episode by being like, yeah, I haven't talked to the guy in years. That's probably not a good dad thing to do, even though he tried to do his like machinations of like, son, I brought you home a pet. This is a girl who will treat you, who will teach you empathy. I hope you enjoy her. Yeah. Given all of that, I guess I'm not at all surprised that Spock is in therapy now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a it's a weird ass childhood. And I hope we see more of it for a myriad of reasons, because if we're not going to see Ethan Peck for a while, we can at least see like little kid, creepy, silent Spock. Yeah, but, you know, at a certain point, they just have to give you they have to give us Spock. They can't keep teasing it. We can't spend the whole season getting teased about where's Spock, where's Spock, what's he up to? Oh, look, there's little baby Spock. Um, Yeah, at a certain point, we're going to stop caring about little baby Spock and we're going to need present Spock or we're going to need to stop talking about him altogether. Yeah, though, again, I feel like uh, his 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 search is inexorably linked to the Red Angel. I feel like the breakthrough for the Red Angel or the first one, at least, is probably going to be when we actually find Spock. It feels like what they're building up here is he's the only one that knows what's going on. Nobody else is really going to know exactly what the connections are. And so once we find him, then we find the key to all this. 
So do we have to solve all seven of the red puzzles before we see Spock? <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe you could fudge it a bit. You're like, yeah, I know the rest of the word. I can I can I can guess what it is. Uh, it's a good point. I mean, uh, hopefully we don't have to wait, you know, eight episodes of a 13 episode season to see Spock. Maybe they could skip over a few. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if they're going to do a one person episode. I mean, it could be like charlie's angels where charlie is the red angel where essentially they get their mission every time but i want to i wonder if especially with building out such a big cast and you know it does seem like they're doing things like they're going to see the klingons they're going to see Giorgio with section 31 uh you know if they are going to necessarily spend every episode completely dedicated to disco i mean the majority of this episode was spent actually on an away mission the only real big disco stuff was tilly based which was was a bit bit of a surprising deviation considering what we usually got from this series thus far yeah i think the series has always been really grounded in um giving us a better sense of the people around us or at least especially this season i think we're starting to get a sense of who these people are that are sitting on the bridge all the time and i think in two cases we got some good moments from characters we haven't really gotten moments from i think i want to call attention to joanne who is apparently a great person to take on this particular away mission because she grew up in a luddite colony (laughs) Yeah, essentially, she sort of grew up in like the uh, the futuristic Amish, essentially. And so she was doing well. I mean, she uh, I was a little saddened that we didn't get to find out more about her besides that. But she was able to jerry rig that uh, simple door lock using Jesse Pinkman's favorite thing, magnets. (laughs) Yeah, I, I enjoyed the magnets. I certainly did. But also, how many ex Luddites do you suppose there are in Starfleet? We got two on the ship already, if you count Saru. That's true. It's interesting because, yeah, maybe it's sort of like, uh, I don't know if Discovery sort of just picking up all the randos, all the misfits and sort of throwing them onto one science oriented ship. But it is interesting that you have two of these people sort of growing up in the the podunk lifestyles compared just to what everyone else is going through. But I'm happy to bring her down. Did get a bit nervous, as you guys talked about last week, when it comes to away missions, if you're bringing down somebody who's not that well known uh, chances are they're either going to be in danger or they're going to go all Connolly and go bye bye. But I'm happy that she did relatively well. Uh, you know, if she had hopped on the phaser instead of Pike when that poor little girl was using it, maybe that wouldn't have been the case. But I'm happy that she survived here. I am as well. I wasn't terribly worried about her just because she's been around. What worries me is when it's somebody you've never seen before and they're like, yep, that guy's going with you. You know, that guy's not coming back. But Mm. I feel like you're insulated if you've been on the show a couple of times before. Um, They actually Deep Space Nine really killed me with this one because there was a character that was in engineering with O'Brien and he was kind of friends with him and you got to know him a couple of times and then. Then they killed him after he'd been in three or four episodes Mm. and really messed with me on that one. Um, Poor Enrique. Um, But I was, yeah, so for that reason, I figured she was going to have a part to play. And I do like that we're not just assuming that everybody on Earth in the 23rd century wears weird tunics and lives in a sterile house with technology and dreams of joining Starfleet. I like that they're kind of excising that homogeneity that we've had in their vision of the future up until this point. Who was the other one that you were uh, excited to see from a tertiary character perspective? I'm excited to see more of Detmer. I thought Mm. she had a great moment. She got to do a donut um, and she got to be excited about it. And she is one that really interests me um, because I think there's 
some interesting potential there with her relationship with Burnham. She was on the ship with Burnham when Burnham committed the mutiny and was injured as a result of it. I think we could see that come into play at some point, and I would be really excited to see that. Yeah, I'm happy to see more Demer as well, because she was one of the, you know, big holdovers from the Shenzhou besides Saru, uh, where obviously there was some tension held there. And that was the most significant thing I remember from that first season in terms of her character. So it's nice to sort of see her step out from not being completely affiliated with Michael Burnham. Uh, You know, she's starting to have a bit of a back and forth with Captain Pike, who seems like he has a bit of a back and forth with everybody. Uh, The bridge scenes are super interesting because this feels, again, a bit more like the Trek that we're used to, as opposed to Lorca just sort of like barking out orders. You have Pike sort of doing some playful jabs at people. He seems a bit more casual and fancy free with things. Makes it more of a nice, uh, nice fun, more of like a startup environment than like a, a cold corporate place that maybe Disco was last season. Well, the the simile that I didn't get to use last week that I had completely forgotten to bring up with Rob, and I don't know if it will resonate with you quite as much, Mike, but I like to think of Captain Pike as the rod building of the universe. Oh, where he yeah. comes in and he's like cool and good looking and he has a rapport with everybody. And sometimes that's what you need. You need that extra vitality and you need to feel like your authority figure is relatable. But it also could come back to us in some weird ways um, where if he's trying too hard to relate to his crew, he could have problems later on. Or he could end up being like the Mr. Turner from a boy meets world of it as well in terms of like like oh he's got a motorcycle he's super cool but he also is able to like help the troubled youth like michael burnham sort of get their get their uh, button gear so uh yeah he does sort of have this like cool teacher vibe i think more than Lorca. so it's an interesting sort of dichotomy to deal with because i mean i guess one of the unfortunate uh disadvantages of sort of trying to say hey we're all on equal playing field here is that sometimes it doesn't necessarily garner respect And you could get into a too many cooks situation where you sort of have people, uh, especially in the first episode, like, you know, uh, talking back to his authority. And while they did have the right judgment there, it might not portend well in really intense circumstances when you have to make decisions on the fly. Yeah. And also look at what he's coming into. He's coming into a situation where you had the previous captain was very authoritarian and very much didn't like people to speak up against him. And it turned out that you weren't supposed to be trusting him at all. And he is a terrible human being. And I can see where you'd want to come in being a little more kinder and gentler after all of that. And it's going to take him a lot of time to get people onto his side. Yeah. And I think that the relationship with Michael is is really interesting in that as well. I know that when I talked with Anson Mount, I got the Great opportunity to go to the Disco Season 2 premiere that happened to p- take place in New York a couple weeks ago. And speaking with Anson Mount, who was growing his own beard, much like some are, are talking about the series is doing with this episode. Uh, but he said that one of the things that he felt Pike saw in Burnham immediately was that he picked her out as the only person on the ship who he felt as like-minded. That he felt potential in as someone who could become a captain, no offense to Saru, or to someone like Tilly who's going through the program to try to do so. And so I think it's been a really interesting relationship to track where it sort of feels like at this point, she's the main person that he'll listen to. I think that he's looking for that bridge to the bridge in a manner of speaking to he's like, she knows the people he doesn't necessarily know how to do it. So he's going to lean on her specifically, even more than someone like Saru, who's directly underneath him to sort of uh, fill him in as to the details. 
And it also, you know, he ends up taking her advice at the end here when he talks about how he can't interfere even when someone like Jacob is, a, you know, an outcast in the community, but it's actually right. Burnham's the one to bring up, like, you may think that, but it actually lies in direct, uh, you know, uh, directly in conflict with your mission to find out everything about these red bursts. So, you know, one goal has to essentially be sacrificed for the other. And he chooses to take her advice and ends up, you know, trading that badass battery for that helmet cam. Uh, I think that it's it, the the fact that he listened to her especially after she ended up, you know, uh, saving his life in the previous episode. It's a very interesting relationship to track. Yeah, I think having Burnham around is definitely going to ease his transition. Um, do we know that the, how long he's going to be around? Is he just here for the season or are we going to dump him mid-season for somebody else? Um, is he like the defense against the dark arts teacher? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I hope that the captain of the Discovery does not become like a revolving seat. Uh, I mean, my best guess is that... I think he's going to be around for this season. We haven't had an official confirmation yet, but the fact that I can't imagine the mystery of the Red Angel stops at a certain point before the end of the season. This feels like the really big arc of everything and save some sort of big revelation about him a la Lorca. I could see him making it the entire way through. It also seems like we're going to get some Rebecca Romaine as number one. So maybe there are some things where he might get pulled back to the Enterprise by his old crew when it's finally out of the shop. And he has to sort of reconcile which crew he goes with. But my estimation, and I know that it understandably both you guys and a lot of people out there were confused at the end of the last episode when it seemed when I mean, he literally vocalized like, hey, you know, Saru and I, I think are going to co-parent this thing uh, turned out not to be the case. Pretty much Saru was captaining only when Pike was out uh, was outside the ship. I'm pretty sure this is now Pike's official child uh, from here on out. Yeah, well, it almost felt like there were two stories happening. You had the one up above and you had the one down below, and they think you needed a captain on either side of those. And just because Saru didn't really do anything, you know, he still was very much driving what was going on. He and Tilly were kind of driving the action up in in the ship. Mm, I mean, I would compare it. Yeah, I would compare it to like in the office. And I think it was like season five or six uh, when Saber takes over and they make uh, but they make Jim in charge of like day to day stuff and they make Michael in charge of big picture stuff. That sort of feels like the Saru yep. Pike dynamic right now. Yep. They're like um, or they're like co-H-O-H. <laughs> exactly. Uh, though, I feel like Laura, uh, Pike would be the one to really speak up and be like, these are really my nominations. Uh, Saru is just sort of standing here next to me to make one to make one pick for me. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Saru could be the captain of the B plot. It's OK. There's yeah. no shame in that. And again, sort of like this thing with Michael, he knows the crew better than Pike. So when you have situations when wackiness is abound and Tilly thinks she's seeing a ghost of someone she met for a hot second in middle school, uh, I, I think that Saru's there to sort of serve as the, you know, the, the captain because he has this relationship with Tilly. It's a bit more manageable than having Pike sort of be like, does she always do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you definitely need you need some people on the ground when you get there. Did you expect the big Sixth Sense twist at the end that May, this newly appearing, to your point, uh, you know, Starfleet apparent uh, crew member was actually uh, someone who had been dead for quite some time? That was very weird to me. And I think the way they set it up was a little bit. It was a little bit strange and they had to write around it so that you wouldn't know that was what was happening. And it's kind of like. 
I'm not even sure what purpose that serves, um, that she's seeing. She didn't even know it was a dead person. Um, and she didn't make the connection that this was somebody she was friends with in middle school, which I thought was very weird. I mean, I guess, you know, I can't necessarily think back. I mean, I obviously had like my close friends in middle school, but it seems like she lived a very transient life. It seems like she was constantly hopping around, which I think led to some of her social anxieties as she vocalized in the first season. But yeah, it is. It's a little odd. Uh, I, di- I didn't realize. I guess you don't need to hang on to those old yearbooks in the, the 23rd century. <laughs> Jess. they're all on file that you can just access via computer. Well, I think I think she was basically going back into her Facebook profile. <laughs> exactly. Check what who wrote on my wall on June 2006. Yeah. And in the future, everybody's going to be able to do that for every moment of their lives. Exactly. I mean, I think that uh, if the voice, if the computer voice had been replaced by the voice of Mark Zuckerberg, it would have been all too uh, pertinent commentary. But yeah, I mean, I'll admit when she was going through the file about May, I sort of predicted the oh, she was dead the whole time thing. But that's because I think with again, with the proliferation of the sixth sense, that's sort of like a twist that we're used to. So I feel like that might have been just a lean too much in the conventional territory. But it sets up a lot of interesting questions for Tilly, who already sort of has an interesting storyline this season as it is. Yeah, yeah. But it's also like, who's going to be in sick bay anyway? We don't really know. So I was primed for there to be a meeting a new person at that point because we don't have Hugh anymore. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to see the doctor there uh, because, yeah, Hugh was not the doctor. He was just a medical officer. But it also speaks towards the interesting storytelling in uh, disco where you, our main character is not a captain. She's a science officer. You know, our main medical officer is is a subordinate of the actual doctor. So I'm happy that these people are also getting admonished by the doctor for their carelessness by just gallivanting around till he probably shattering a few ribs by just getting completely bucked, uh, you know, into a bunch of canisters by the, capturing this asteroid with the dark matter interacting with her. Uh, so I, I would be here for every single episode, somebody getting injured and sort of like actually uh, Madame Pomfrey in, a, in Harry Potter, like just being like, what are you doing? Please stop it. You almost died. Why are you doing Why are you making this hell for me? You've convinced me. I think the worst job in Starfleet is medical officer. Absolutely. I think it's the hardest one, because while engineering requires all these quantum level uh, you know, scientific measurements, you have to a know so many things about so many different conditions that can happen to so many different types of races and how they interact. But I mean, you have to have good bedside manner when people are doing completely stupid things uh, like you could sell like she was totally throwing some side eye towards Captain Pike for being like, oh, you leapt on a phaser. Fantastic. Great. Uh, try to try to lay off it for a few seconds. Daredevil. Yeah, it's no wonder that Voyager just replaced their doctor with an artificial intelligence. <laughs> exactly. That way it, it has better bedside manner, maybe. Uh, but I think that the doctor is uh, she's understandable in her logic here. And hopefully uh, these people don't keep throwing themselves into danger again. Maybe if we're adapting more so to the uh, going down to a planet in a mission rather than flying through an asteroid field or fighting a bunch of people. Maybe that mitigates the idea of injury, uh, though. Maybe it will it will help, you know. Uh, develop more, I don't know, uh, mental trauma than physical. Well, that's why they have Starbase 5, Mike. (laughs) Yes, true. Yeah, if you're feeling a lot of mental trauma, just go to Starbase 5 where they're a lot nicer to you than maybe your doctor who will admonish you uh, in sickbay for the actions that you decide to undergo on the ship and off. Yeah, I'm looking, I'm envisioning like a commercial for this, like, you know how they have the commercial for the rehab centers? It's like Starbase 5. And there's like they've got like a little holodeck with gardens and they've got, you know, 
they, they have support groups and everybody wears fluffy bathrobes and it's kind of a warm, fuzzy, rehabilitative experience. Yeah, it's like the futuristic Betty Ford Clinic. Exactly, exactly. Horizons on yeah, Starbase I mean, 5. And you could say, like, I think Spock is hoity-toity enough. He is, you know, a science officer aboard a premier Starfleet vessel that I think he, he could get in. I think he'd, uh, he'd be allowed admission there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've, they've got a bed for him. He seems okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, like, is there anything else you want to touch on um, out of this really wonderful episode? No, there there was a lot of interesting things. I mean, I will give a lot of credit to the actors uh, who were on New Eden. I think particularly, uh, I believe the actor that played Jacob. I'm just trying to look up his name here. He was in Orphan Black. Yeah, that's why I was like, he looks looks super familiar. Uh, And I thought he did a great job here because, again, it was a really interesting story that you know, usually a radical within any sort of sect of religion is someone who maybe has views that are completely out there and might be regarded as more fictional. The irony of the situation is that he was hewn more closely to the truth. And I love that he sort of has this idea connected back to this family as well about how he comes from this generation of scientists who worked their entire lives to have this be believed. And he gives this really great speech to uh to pike at the end of it where he essentially says you know like this is my family's work and you have just basically completely confirmed you know everything that i have been working and living for my entire life so thank you so in a way pike was his savior there are so many fun parallels this episode in terms of from both a realistic and idealistic perspective what this idea of a savior is uh and it'll the cliffhanger was fun as well to see that pike now sees that maybe this red angel is a legit thing. Uh, I, I know that he sort of likes, you know, I think he'd entertained what Burnham told him beforehand, but now that he's officially seen it, it'll be interesting to see, especially as him as the aforementioned man of faith, how he'll approach his, uh, his own discovery mission because of it. But it's a, it's a good place to leave things off as we assumingly go off to either the next red burst or someone else, somewhere else in the universe. Well, yeah. And to, to your point, I think, We've had this, we've had those characters before where they go down onto the planet and there's like one outlier who has extreme views that clash with everybody else. And usually when that happens on a Star Trek episode, he is trying to bring about the destruction of everybody or he's inadvertently going to bring about the destruction of everybody. And that doesn't seem to be what was going on this episode. It seemed like these two conflicting viewpoints could coexist in this universe and even after even after jacob gets his proof it doesn't seem like their society is going to be upended because of it and i liked it also parallels this idea that maybe when something happens you can't explain it's okay to want to explain it while simultaneously having faith that it's calling you to a higher purpose and that's such a complicated thing to bring about in the Star Trek world, which usually pits those two things against each other. So very excited to see that move forward and those two things to run in tandem. Yeah, that that's why I really love this episode. That's when I love Star Trek the best is when we get into these really creative endeavors that really show no matter where you go and when you go into the future, there are still conditions within the human or alien spirit that persist and remain. These are philosophical and moralistic debates that will occur in perpetuity forever. And I think it's a great way to say, like, yes, we are putting things under a weird old filter, 
but it's still the same stuff at the end of the day that we're still talking about today. And I think that's something that Disco did really well in this episode. And I'm really excited to see where they take off from here, because I think that, again, season two serves as a really interesting transitory period. Uh, and especially considering how much the universe of this new Star Trek on CBS in the 2010s is building up. And maybe that's something that will get approached in something like the new Picard show or maybe the uh, the Giorgio show, considering how that might deal with the, the ethical stuff, considering uh, Section 31 sort of sordid history in terms of is torture, you know, uh, do the ends justify the means when it comes to more torturous methods? There's a lot of just great granular moral things going on here. And I think New Eden is a great representation of that. And it certainly shows us that we have a lot more territory to cover before we run out of stories. And it seems like we're definitely not going to do that anytime soon. Yeah, that's good. We got a whole universe ahead of us, which substantiates a good number of spinoffs. <laughs> Indeed. Um, multiple universes. Um, what is that? The infinite worlds theory. Um, yeah. And we certainly have plenty of territory to cover and plenty of themes to explore and all season long on star trek discovery we will have mike bloom exploring all of these themes for the hollywoodreporter.com and where else can we find you in the world so you can always follow me at a mike bloom type you can always check out my star trek discovery stuff just go to thr.com slash star trek discovery i would be super grateful if you guys would check it out i have an absolute blast this season getting to cover all of this it has been such a super interesting show this season, especially uh, this past week. I got to, I would honestly say uh, from a nerd point of view, check something off my bucket list and getting to talk with Jonathan Frakes, who again ended up directing this episode. I know this is not the first disco episode he directed, but if you're talking about this, um, this idea of bridging the old with the new, I think it's, you know, pretty coincidental that this guy who is a representation of such old school Star Trek got to came in and came in, come in and direct something new. And he actually told me while we were interviewing, he's like, yeah, that old school view was that that was what we were going for. So I'm glad you guys saw it. And it seems like we sort of collectively saw it as well. And as just mentioned before, I also took a bit of a more analytical deep dive into some of these themes of faith and how it serves as a nice, interesting contrast from the way the series was initially conceived and how it's developed through the year. So I'll be doing stuff. It'll probably come out, you know, either right after the episode comes out or the day after. I'll try to provide a nice little juicy nugget that either breaks down the episode or has an interview with the person behind the scenes or in front of the camera. But it's been so much fun. It's been great fun to get to listen to you and Rob talk through this. I'm also doing coverage for Parade of things like Celebrity Big Brother and Survivor and Top Chef. I do podcasts about Top Top Chef, RuPaul's Drag Race. I'll be doing some Survivor when that comes back as well. So I'm popping up all over the podcast sphere like the Seven Red Bursts. So be sure to follow me so you can tell exactly where you need to warp to. Yeah, and you don't need a spore drive to go to all the places that Mike Bloom is covering. <laughs> exactly. Stamets can take a load off for a second. <laughs> and you certainly don't need a spore drive to find all the things that I'm doing because I'm not doing nearly as many things. But Rob and I will be back very, very soon with Walking Dead coverage, and we will be coming at you with Star Trek Discovery podcast recaps all season long. And I, while I am very happy to be talking to Mike and get his take on this episode in particular, uh, Rob will be back next week as we talk about episode three. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Haymaker Hattie, and you can follow Post Show Recaps at postshowrecaps.com or on Twitter at the same thing. So thank you guys all for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>